Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Welcome to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host of Privacy Piracy, and today we are sitting here on Torch Lake, Michigan with Dr. Larry Poneman, founder of the Poneman Institute, and Susan Jason, privacy researcher of the Poneman Institute. This world-renowned research and educational organization advances responsible information and privacy management practices within business and government. You can learn much more about them and the high-quality work that they do at Poneman.org. Also, we have had Larry and Susan on our show previously two or three times with the wonderful studies that they've done. And last year, we interviewed them in a teepee in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And this is even more exciting, sitting on this gorgeous lake. Thank you for joining us, Larry and Susan. Thank you very much, Mari. We're really happy to do this interview once again. It's now becoming like our, an annual event. Well, we are just so thrilled to be here. It's a beautiful place, and this is just a, a real privilege. We've been spending the last couple of days with privacy professionals from major corporations at the Responsible Information Management Practices Seminar for the weekend. And the professionals have a strong commitment and feel it's their ethical duty to responsibly manage the sensitive information of their customers, employees, and their organization. And Larry and Susan, you have really been the ones who have been pioneering and leading the way. Before we start talking about some of your current research, we want you to, first of all, we want to thank you for all the work that you do in no, privacy you, and Mari. responsible. You, you are just really wonderful, and we're so honored to know you and be a part of all the wonderful things that you're doing. Well, ditto on that one. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the most inspiring part of this last weekend was meeting with really ethical people in leadership positions. It was very, I think, inspiring to know that there are some really wonderful people doing good things in corporations and government. Larry, What were your objectives for the conference, and were they met? Well, the objectives of the RIM Renaissance Weekend is to have an open, constructive, honest discussion around issues that actually organizations face in implementing good privacy, data protection, and information security practices. The idea is to talk about what are the reasons why organizations achieve success And what are the reasons why or the barriers that prevent them from achieving success? And from these discussions, we conduct research because there's a learning opportunity for us. And so we've learned lots of interesting things this weekend that hopefully we'll take to the, you know, to the, the, to uh, incorporate, excuse me, into the research that we hope to do over the next 12 months. Right. Susan, for you, what was the best part of this last weekend? I think just getting really smart people together to discuss these issues. So many times we we talk to our members over the phone. We don't have a chance to sit down with them in person. 
And I think that's the best part is just getting people in a room in a non-threatening, open forum to talk about some of the really pressing issues they're facing. Yes, and there was a lot of creativity in that room. It was great. Let's now talk about some of the surveys and research that both of you have done. And if we can start out with the first, uh, one of the recent ones that you've done that I thought was fascinating was the 2007 Consumer Survey on Data Security. And this was sponsored by Vantu, but you did the independent research. Yes. Larry, what was the intention of that survey? Well, one of the things that we're trying to better understand is has the consumer's understanding and attitudes about privacy changed over the last four or five years? I mean, clearly every, every day, it seems like every couple of minutes, there's another privacy glitch, there's a data protection problem, there's a, uh, a, a data breach, and I think the consumers, for the most part, are becoming smarter about their privacy and their privacy rights. I also think that consumers, and rightfully so, are concerned about identity theft. And so what we really wanted to understand is, have these perceptions changed? And we also tried to determine, are there differences based on key demographics like age? One of the other interesting findings of the Von Tu study was that it appears that younger aged adults are equally concerned about privacy, but their, their definitions and concerns about privacy are different from older age Americans. And so what we're really trying to understand is how do these concerns, uh, perceptions about privacy change, and what is the implication for an organization in implementing a good privacy program? Mm -hmm. And Susan, um, what are people most worried about? What did you learn from that survey? Well, I think what they're most concerned about, which we found was interesting, is is the negligence, the potential negligence within an organization. They're, they understand that hackers and, and the criminals out there who can take steal their identity or hack into a company's um, data files. But what, they, but what they're most concerned about is the, the employee who doesn't take the responsibility for protecting and safeguarding personal information. And I think this is what we try to promote in training is that companies really instill in their employees the uh, respect that they should have for the information that they are handling or managing within their day-to-day roles. Right. Now, you've done some studies previously. What did you find? A few, I remember you had done studies with consumer surveys. Sure. And what were the thoughts then, and, and what do you see as, as a major change? Well, I think one of the major, um, imp- uh, I, I would call it one of the most important changes to privacy relates to the data breach notification law. Okay. I think over the last three or four years, this has created a transparency, positive and negative. Organizations are now required by law to report a data breach that, that concerns your sensitive personal information. And as a result of that, I think consumers realize that there's a lot of risk. You know, whether you shop at TJ Maxx or whether you do banking at a major bank, it could happen anywhere, and these kinds of events seem to happen all the time. I think it also allows some organizations to become better at managing privacy, and so it becomes a differentiator. There are good examples. For example, in some of our banking studies, U.S. Bank. Um, Chase, Bank of America, seem to really take pride in their privacy practices, and they're more external about it, which is a very, very good thing. So I think at the end of the day, we think consumers are getting smarter about privacy, but they're still concerned about it, and they should be. And companies are becoming better at managing their privacy commitments. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of more regulation and law. I think with the data breach laws that were, in fact, started in California under SB 1386, I think it has been absolutely beneficial to both both consumers and those organizations that do a good job in managing privacy. Right. I think um, there's a value added that you were talking about with some of the companies. They're realizing that focusing on privacy is a value that they're adding to their quality of what of having more trust that having their customers trust them more absolutely think about it this way when you do business on the internet how do you know that an organization is trustworthy what are the indicators because you don't have a physical presence there's not a store there's not a nice and friendly shopping clerk behind the you know at, at, at the counter 
So you have to rely on other factors, and privacy and data protection and information security become leading indicators of trustworthiness. I think consumers today are expecting organizations to be good stewards of their information. Failing to do that leads to a trust erosion very quickly. Right. Are you finding that consumers are less likely to easily give over their personal information as a result of all the security breach notification? We, we haven't actually tracked that. We're going to, by the way, and this is one of our ambitions over the next couple of years is to do a privacy tracking study because we have the foundation for it from some of the earlier studies. But based on, again, a little bit of conjecture on our part, it does appear that companies, or excuse me, consumers, are doing a better job in taking the appropriate steps to manage their data. In other words, if you go to a website and it says, please give us your social security number, the majority of people will say, never. <laughs> Why? What are you going to use that for? Now, there's still some people who will, you know, whatever you ask, I will provide. You know, how many times are we in a store, you know, you could your favorite store, and they'll say, give me your telephone number. And you'd say, well, why do they need my telephone number? Are they going to call me? What are they? Yeah. But we just do it because we don't want to look silly. And we don't want to create a, you know, a, a, an issue, you know, a, a, a situation as we're checking out of, the, you know, of, a, of that store. So I think people are still, the majority of people, still are willing to provide too much information about themselves. Right. Well, you were talking before about the privacy gap. Susan, um, why do you think there is a privacy gap? And maybe talk a little bit about that privacy gap. Well, I think what we have found is that there is a different uh, difference in perceptions about privacy based on, on your age. And I, I think basically it has to do with older uh, workers or older Americans not having grown up with the technology that the, the younger generation has grown up. So they're, they feel very comfortable with iPods and other devices that, um, you know, that they've become accustomed to as part of their life and, and going on Facebook and, and MySpace because of the way that they've been using already the computer to text message. So whereas the older ones like us who <laughs> are, we were a little bit more reluctant and concerned about exactly what's going to happen with our personal information. And we, I think we're also more private about our personal lives than younger people tend to be. And I think the, the issue that's going to, that is going to come out is that, um, to, that the younger people should become more protective of their personal information because what is captured now will follow them the rest of their lives. You know, I want to bring this up because we had uh, spoken with uh, Phil Gordon uh, several weeks right, ago in, yeah. about the privacy gap study that you did with Phil. Yeah. And so let's kind of divert a little bit because I think this is a fascinating issue, especially since this show is airing at the University of California, Irvine, with all these college students. So, oh, Larry, right. you know, talk more about that whole privacy gap between the younger generation, like my kids and your kids and, <laughs> and, and us. I, it, it's really hard to predict what the outcome is going to be, but it seems as if, as, as Susan mentioned, that the there's not a fear of technology. So, for example, iPod, iPhone, which is kind of this new invention, right? Mm -hmm. That iPhone is going to capture everything about you, every music, every song, every every website that you visit, and that's its design. And I think younger age consumers, Americans, basically aren't worried about that. What they do care about, however, is their anonymity. Like, in other words, they, they don't mind having a device that collects everything about them, except it has to be anonymous. You have to be known as a, as a device number or an IP address. And if you're not, if somehow your, 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 your name and address are revealed, then it becomes a bigger privacy issue for, you know, for the, even the younger-aged Americans. So I think where the, is this all heading? I think over time... As Susan mentioned, as people grow into more responsible positions and they're denied jobs because, well, their Facebook, their home, their page reflected that they like to consume large quantities of alcohol or do silly things or make funny noises, whatever it is, at the end of the day, when those experiences start affecting their, their responsible life, there may be a change. There may be more convergence of their perceptions to old fogies like 
like me. <laughs> and me. <laughs> oh, not you. I think you, the but scary me. thing, you know, we were talking about this with with Phil a few weeks ago, and we were talking about this this weekend about how, you know, these search engines like Google can be used without a real background check, and and those students who might be listening to us right now don't haven't experienced the kind of privacy invasions and privacy breaches that those of us who are older maybe you know who've had credit cards who've gotten the privacy notices in the mail they haven't even been subjected to some of the privacy breaches but this kind of privacy breach could literally ruin their career gosh you know it's it's so amazing i mean for example five or ten years ago you know you wouldn't expect to see your name and your photograph or videotape clipping on google it'd be like a rare event now, or in the next five or ten years, I think the expectation is if you're not in Google, when you do a search term, you don't exist. You're, you're invisible. You're an extraterrestrial. You're an extraterrestrial. <laughs> you're from Mars. So, so I think what we're starting to see are um, these the stepping over the line. You know, it's unclear what that line is. So if you're an employer and you're going to recruit someone for a very important job, say it's a, you know, an auditor for my old firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, why wouldn't you look at the Facebook or MySpace or even just do a Google or look at blogs? Um, the reality is, while that sounds like a good idea, there are ethical and potential privacy issues involved in this. Um, the flip side of that is, well, if you're an organization, you want to prevent, the, the if, if you can, hiring the wrong person. You know, it may not be an embarrassment, but it may be someone who is associated with, you know, all sorts of ethical, egregious ethical behavior. Or, you know, we talked about this, there is so much cyberbullying and mistakes and identity theft. And just clearly, you know, there's no checks on the accuracy of the data that's put up there. And I think that people might say, well, I have nothing to hide. And then they call me and they say, well, wait a minute, I have nothing to hide, but someone's put something up there that's not about me. Right, I, and I think that's scary, thinking of, of companies who are driving by and listening to this, thinking, well, gee, you know, I want to hire some new people instead of getting um, a private investigator. I'll just go on Google. I'll just do my own search. I'll just, you know, uh, pay for some background checks, and I, I'm just going to go on that. And what about that accuracy? Gosh, that, see, that the, the flip side is, you know, so we have people doing silly things, but at least it's the truth. I mean, you know, consuming a keg of beer yeah. on YouTube, it's you. You can't, you can't avoid it. Right. You know, face, facial recognition or whatever, it's going to prove that it's you. But, but then there's the other problem, which is a much more serious problem, and that's inaccurate information being used to diminish reputation, and then you have no control or recourse. Um, I could talk about actual stories, but my one story, which is near and dear my heart, um, is my son, who is in college. I'm not going to mention names here, but it, when he was a freshman, um, there were some people in his dorm that thought it would be funny to create a website mm. that were photographs that people took of him in awkward positions and eating dinner and whatever. And it was used, at, it was in the university, and for a period of time, he became more than famous. He was infamous. Right. He would walk into a building and say, hey, he's here. And, and he had no control and no knowledge of this until, you know, it was obviously too late. Now, to the, I, I will say that the, um, the social networking site, I think it was Facebook, was very responsible. And they responded, and they removed the information. And also, the school that he attended was very responsible. But at the end of the day, you know, he knew about it. He learned about it. If he never knew about it, this type of information probably could be used against right. him later in life. So and these are the stuff stories. stuff ever really go away? They say if they take something down that it's cached somewhere or it's no. archived somewhere. I mean, does stuff really ever go away? Well, it's like a fingerprint, you know. Yeah. You know, you're in, you're, your evidence is there, and it's discoverable. And that's an issue for a lot of people. How much do you, what, what kind of betrayal do you want to leave behind? What do you want to be known for? You know, it's kind of scary because if you run for political office, you know, you first question Nobody you ask yourself. Nobody on Facebook can ever run for political office. Yeah, so you office. say, well, who's going to run? <laughs> so it's like the Manchurian candidate, someone who's in a prisoner of war, you know, right. camper. Because no one in their right mind is going to want to be, be yeah. reveal that level of scrutiny. It's kind of scary. 
You know, Larry, when you were talking about what happened to your son, I think it's really scary even that there is this kind of cyberbullying. There was a case in Orange County of a girl who someone put up a website and used Adobe Photoshop wow. to put her head on other bodies. Oh, boy. And it really wasn't her. And so this was, she was getting all this stuff at the high school. She ended up, you know, trying to find out who it was and wanting to sue. But this became a big issue. So when you say, well, they have a picture and it's you, to be honest with you, we can do all sorts of stuff with technology, with Adobe Photoshop, even with, with facial recognition. You could, uh, Beth Givens and I were talking about this, how there are some real instances of someone actually taking that digital photo and putting it into a crowd that they're not even there. Wow. So the yeah, technology is is not only someone if it's really you and hey, you know, you're in college and you should have a be forgiven for that. But now what about this you know, it's hard to even decipher what really is true and what isn't true because of the ability with Photoshop to, to make these changes. See, I, I think you're you're hitting on kind of the, the, the next big privacy issue. And that's the issue of data quality and accuracy. We've focused on, well, should my information be used? But it's right. still my information, whether it's true or not true. We haven't really solved that problem. The accuracy issue is a far more serious and potentially sinister problem. Um, so for your audience, if you're a college student, um, I would ask actually ask you to spend the time monitoring the Internet to see what's out there about you and try take steps. If there's something out there that you believe is not true, work with the ISP, work with the, the uh, publisher, the, web, the, the, the social networking company, and solve that problem. Another issue that's a very sinister, serious problem is Web 2.0. As we start to have more peer-to-peer -peer systems, we lose even more control over the information that anyone can glean from your computer. So it's just these devices and technologies are phenomenal, and we shouldn't Tell operate in fear. Tell us about that Web 2.0. What, what will that do to us? Well, we know it as things like, you know, music sharing and Napster peer -to -peer and peer-to-peer -peer uh -huh. file sharing. But in the, in the aggregate, a peer-to-peer -peer network is a gigantic universal network that connects all of our systems together. And so there's a different type of Internet that's emerging. It's not the Internet that we know, like, through Google search. And that Internet actually allows people from all over the world to access more than what's on a screen. Mm. It allows you to see files and documents and Excel spreadsheets and photographs and all sorts of things about other people that are participating in that network. And as it evolves and becomes more serious, you know, a more seriously used um, uh, source of information, it has the potential to create lots of ethical and potential privacy problems for people. Right. Uh, we're listening and we're standing here and sitting here at rather and looking at this beautiful lake and looking at gorgeous Susan Jason, who's a <laughs> privacy re researcher for the Poneman Institute, and Larry Poneman, who is our great leader here and pioneer and CEO and founder of the Poneman Institute. Thank you very much. And yes, and he <laughs> sings and plays the guitar. I think we should get a little bit of guitar on this uh, tape no, as well. I'm not sure I'm good enough to play the guitar. But. Oh, yes, you are. You know, remember, we're mostly a, a music station. So oh, great. we have lots of DJs that do all music and just this is a PA show in the afternoon. So uh, we could kind of combine it. Okay. okay. Original I'll, music. I'll do some Led Zeppelin. <laughs> No, we don't. We oh. only are indie music. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's get back to this. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, Susan, as a privacy researcher, if you could do something, what kind of privacy research could be done? And, and this is kind of brainstorming, kind of throwing this at both of you, about data accuracy. Because, you know, a few years ago, two years ago, I testified in Congress on a bill that was introduced by Senator Bill Nelson that was really going to... Um, address the information systems, uh, you know, uh, data brokers, information brokers, background searchers, to make sure that they were um, qualifying and, and making sure that there was accuracy in their data like we have with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And that fell by the wayside, and that is still a huge issue. So I, I, and with the two of you, is that something that, that could even be studied? 
Well, I think what Larry mentioned before is that we want to track consumers' perceptions. And I think it's very interesting that we keep telling consumers to watch their credit reports because of these issues. But right. it's almost coming to the point where we have to educate consumers to, to monitor what is being put on them on the Internet. Right. So it's a whole new level. And I think that what we've tried to do in better understanding what companies, how companies are addressing all these issues is to ask the IT professionals because we view them as the people who are in the trenches and who are trying to protect their companies and trying to protect the consumers. So I think that what we're going to continue to do is watch and see how companies are, what their perceptions are about the dangers uh, about all this, uh, you know, the exploitation or the of, of uh, you know, consumers' information. Right. In terms of data accuracy, because I think the, the, you you ask a really good question, and you, the issue that you you know with, that you testified uh, about the issue of the data brokers having potentially inaccurate information, accuracy and, is a, and Google and Google and yeah. accuracy is a it, you know it's it's one of these it's a relative concept it's not absolute. So for example, if I have data that will be used to send them like a catalog in the mail, does it have to be a hundred percent accurate? Probably not. If I, that same data is going to be used to um, determine whether I'm worthy of a job, it's it better be pretty accurate. Um, so the the key variable is with the use of the data. What is the intended use? And as we know, use changes all the time. It starts by, gee, you know, you're going to get a Victoria's Secrets catalog in the mail. Right. To gee, this same list is going to prevent you from getting on a plane, like because somehow you're the labeled a, list, right. a TSA do not fly list. So right. I think what we're trying to do is understand the use issue and and limit if we can limit use, that we can potentially solve some of the accuracy issue. The, let me just tell you what we've discovered. And there's an organization called Privacy Activism, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful organization, and they've attempted to determine the accuracy of credit uh, report information. They contacted, uh, I believe it was Axiom and Experian, and I forget the results exactly, but, you know, not to my surprise, the results were pretty inaccurate. Yeah, you know, the United States Public Interest Research Group did uh, the credit report, and they found that 70% of credit reports had errors, and 29% of those were enough to keep you from getting a job or getting a car or getting a credit card or an apartment. It's massive. It's massive. massive. So so what we're thinking about doing as a research project, and, you know, so we're going to let you know in advance, is we would like to do a test of accuracy. The design of the study that we are contemplating, we haven't actually implemented it yet, maybe this is for next year at the Room Renaissance, is to basically ask people to go on Google. Just do a Google search and see what it says about them. And then determine whether there are any inaccuracies in what's being revealed. Now, it has to be self-reported because we don't want to violate their privacy by asking them anything personal. But at the end of the day, I bet, my gut tells me, the the inaccuracy rate will be pretty high. I'm not sure if it's 70%, but it could be pretty high. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea, and again, we're brainstorming while we're on here, Mm -hmm. but, you know, uh, we've had Choice Point on our show before, Carol DeBatiste, who's the privacy officer. She's done wonders. You know, Choice Point went from their horrible scandal with their security breach to really turning things around and being a leader in the information broker industry. Yeah, Choice Point's a really great case study in doing it right. That's why I'm thinking what you could also do is maybe do something with Choice Point because Choice Point now offers a uh, a free, by the way, people can go to choicepoint.com and they can not only get their free public records once a right. year, they can get their free um, background, uh, work background, and free insurance in, uh, history background oh, great. for free once yeah. a year. This was part of the FACTA Act. Yeah. And I'm having someone else on from Choice Point that's coming on about consumers, but I'm thinking that since they can get it for free, get a almost a, a complete background check from Choice Point, that might be a very good place besides Google for you to put into your study because Choice Point collects public records. That's a great idea. Well, you're going to be my co-author on this one. <laughs> Because because I think I think we have to actually surface the issue. We just generally assume the problem is about too much information. We haven't really focused on too much incorrect information, exactly. and I think that needs to be the new focus of research as we study the implications of 
Web 2.0, Google search engines, and all of this stuff. Yeah, because that's the danger. I mean, collecting a lot of information, if someone has a lot of information and it's not used to your detriment, you're not as worried as if somebody finds out that they're not going to get a job or they yeah. can't get on the airplane or, you know, they can't, you know, I don't know if you know about this this new thing. We, we just interviewed um, uh, about a study, like what was that study, where um, the Treasury Department has this list that since you are not supposed to use money, that uh, you aren't supposed to do, do business with someone who is possibly on the terrorist list. Right. So there are people who are innocent people who have names that are maybe similar, like Cameron Diaz. Yeah. Diaz is a name that maybe um, was drug smuggling in Colombia. And um, so what happens is, is you get on this list and you can't buy a house. You can't get a mortgage because if these companies do business with you, they're, they're subject to huge violations. Right. And there is a tremendous amount of inaccuracy if maybe just your middle name is the same or Muhammad. So this you is have, the money laundering list. The money laundering yeah. list, yes. But it's become the, the no-buy list. Yeah. It's not just like the we no have a no-buy list. Yep. Now we have a no-buy list. People, yep. I mean... People are afraid, even retailers might be afraid, if they pull your credit report, and on your credit report, TransUnion is actually um, notifying companies of this probable yeah. or possibility of being on this list. It's not for sure, but, but it says that you should you know, find out the accuracy for yourself. But a lot of companies and mortgage companies are afraid, hey, I'm not even going to deal with this person yeah, because you, I don't want to have it. So this no-buy list is another one that will you know keep you from being able to get an apartment or purchase a home yeah it it's really it's really very scary i've heard about this as well and i will definitely say that in the in the wrong hands that kind of information will or can or will destroy people right so in other words if i want to say how do i make your life a really bad life and where you're living in a cardboard hut somewhere in the middle of New York City, then I just put your name on one of these lists. And the other problem about lists is lists are, it's not one list. It's not a master list that there's an error, you fix it. There are multiple lists. Just like there and are, they, they share these lists. Yeah. So the information is not necessarily that well controlled. We would assume that if it's that dangerous to get the, the, you know, the red dot next to your name, preventing you from buying a home or doing anything, then the, that organization is going to take steps to prevent mistakes or, if there is a mistake, give you an opportunity to remove that defect from the list. It doesn't happen very well. No. And, you know, I think it gets back to the whole issue of transparency. Right. I agree. That if you, you know, when you say that you're going to talk to consumers about getting their background check or getting their Google check, Let's say, you know, they, if they have to sit there and search Google and every other search engine for their name, um, then there are no steps to really that are established or that are legal or whatever to even clarify and to remove. I mean, I have helped people who have been on websites, and I want to tell you, they... There is a lot of problem because people don't want to uh, help you. You police right. don't want oh, to help yeah. you, and so it is not just so easy to even correct that. And for example, these these uh, no buy lists and the yeah. no fly lists, there's no transparency. You don't yeah. know how you got on it. Yeah. You don't know what to do to get off of it. There's no with with the Treasury Department with the money laundering. Yeah. There are there is no website that you can go to like you do with the no-fly list and right. say, you know, help me. And by the way, those no-fly lists, those don't even work. Yeah. Um, so that's the problem is that once you're in a database, at least with governmental, there is no transparency. Yeah. See, the I, I know for a fact that the Department of Homeland Security has actually worked very hard to create a redress process. The problem is it's not one list. If it's just one list, you could fix it. But if it's 10, 20, 50, 100 thousands of lists, you can't really solve that problem, coupled with the fact that Department of Homeland Security is not the Treasury. Right. Is not, you know, the Treasury has its list. Right. And, and so I'm sure there's another branch of government. Oh, sure. And the FBI has their has own its list. list. Yeah, so sure. the fact is it's really, really difficult to control, not because of intention necessarily, although it could be, 
but it's more likely to be incompetence or negligence. You know, we were talking this weekend, Susan, about how much information is gathered, you know, and, and um, some of the things, what should companies do at least with regard to gathering information? What kinds of things should they be doing? Well, I think what came out during the discussion this weekend was that many companies view the more information they have, the better, because the better they feel in being able to market to target the right customers. But the responsible companies are really looking at exactly what is, what kind of data do they really need to meet their business objectives and to limit the amount of data that is collected. And companies are starting, they're seeing the benefit that the less data they collect, the less risk. Um, also, it, it, it's less cost to, to have the storage, and then, you know, as a result, if they have to go through uh, data disposal. So I think that the message is getting out that really look and, and really consider carefully exactly what is the, what data do you need to accomplish your business objectives and stop at that point. Yeah, it's funny. I, we, we developed this concept. You've heard of the term one-to-one that there's a one-to-one relationship, which means both the provider of a, a product or service and the customer know as much as you can possibly know about each other. So as a consumer, you get the product that you really want, and you pay a good fair price for it, and the seller didn't waste her time or his time trying to figure out who's interested in the product. It makes sense. It just doesn't work because there are information quality issues and all sorts of problems. What we're starting to see is the emergence of a one-to-zero type of model where the organization just uses the information necessary to get the message to you, and that's it. And that's done through anonymity. That's why it's zero. There's no need to know your identity. We just need to know some basic characteristics. And even there, we collect the information that we need, not everything we might want to know, but just enough. And so I think that we're going to start to see more anonymous types of marketing schemes and more tools in the internet marketing space that will allow organizations to do that effectively because that's what trust's all about if you don't need to know me when you send me that catalog i want to make sure if that catalog is sent you don't have my name you just somehow i appeared on some list and i'm getting this uh, if I'm getting an email message, a, 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 not a spam, but something I might be interested in, when I open up that email, I don't want to worry about being fished or have this as a spoofing exercise. I want to know it's true. So there's this idea that anonymity is probably going to be the solution to the mar- marketing pro- the marketing privacy problem. Right. You know, in that study that you just did, um, what did what did consumers think about the buying and selling of their personal information? And uh, which industries really create more concern for them? You know, it's interesting. They were mostly concerned about the selling. Like, oh, my God, you're actually profiting by selling my data? What is wrong with that company? And that, that, that was a, diminut- a trust, you know, guaranteed to reduce trust and confidence, except for government where the major finding was people were more concerned with government buying. (laughs) Like, why are they buying that information? What are they going to do with it? So if you look at all industries, from banking to healthcare to whomever, it was the fear factor was about selling, not buying as much. Although, you know, you're concerned about both. But less, much more concerned when government is a buyer of your... Right. So if 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 a company that you're dealing with and buying from products from... You're not as worried. In other words, consumers aren't as worried as that as that company having their personal information. Right. It's more about who else is getting it from that company or yeah. is, the, is the government. Yeah, gov- the government is kind of a special case. Consumers really don't like the idea of government buying consumer commercial data and using it in ways that no one really un- – maybe it's that do not buy list or right. do not sell list or whatever. So people are worried about government. But uh, in in almost every other case, it's the word selling my data that gets people a little bit irked out. You know, they start to worry about, well, why are they selling and how much profit are they making from my information? I think that's the real driver to their fear. You know, we were also talking about the the global issues in privacy. And how how do the Europeans think about privacy, Susan? I mean, they don't think about it like we do. And, you know, when you talk about selling information, um, 
and, and Americans don't want their information sold, well, what is the issue with, you know, how are we different from the Europeans? Do they want their information sold, or what kind of rights do they have? Well, I think that they are more concerned about privacy, and I think it, 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 if you look back the history of Europe and Nazism, I think that personal information is very, uh, I think it, it, they became more concerned about privacy before we did in this country, and I think if you look back at the history, you can understand why. And, and the European companies have very strict rules about the transfer of their of of their employee data, their customer data. So they were really ahead of us in terms of realizing that it's important to respect individuals' personal um, information. Right. And that's yeah. like the difference, kind of explain to my audience about the difference between opt-in and opt-out for the kind of the European influence versus the American influence. Yeah, what, what I also find is very interesting is that we did a study with a firm called White and Case. You remember you yeah. interviewed Dave Bender. Yes. This is about two years ago. And we were actually pretty surprised in our benchmarking study at comparing European companies to U.S. companies. European companies did not do as well on our privacy compliance uh, benchmarking uh, database. They basically didn't do as much policy, notification, training of employees, didn't use the same security tools that we see regularly used in the United States. So while there's that public sentiment, don't use or sell my data, it seems like European companies are laggards <laughs> to American companies. And I hate to generalize because that's not true across the board, but certainly what we've discovered is that the U.S. outperformed um, European companies on compliance. And I think there is a reason for it. It's not just because of altruism. <laughs> I think it's because of our legal system. Uh -huh. You get sued if you're really negligent and incompetent. And in Europe, there's not that threat of a lawsuit or a class action litigation. So this is where lawyers do good. But you know, I think Susan has a really important point that that people don't realize in our country. And that is that basically that in, in Europe, the people feel the citizenry feels that they own their personal information and right. here companies say no you don't own it it's in our database it is our proprietary information and it's almost our uh, intellectual property so to speak yeah it's funny we had a discussion at the rim renaissance on intellectual property and whether we can start treating data like customer files and employee records as a source of intellectual property. Well, we didn't actually have a clear verdict on that one, if you recall from our heated discussion. I think the end of the day, if we treat it as our intellectual property rather than just something that's worthless, uh, then I think there will be a sea change in the way Americans care, think about privacy. So it is our intellectual property, and it's something that is attached to us forever, so we should take the appropriate steps to manage it. Right. It's... Um if they would treat, I think one of the things we talked about another study, we're kind of jumping to another study, sure. but what, how people, how um, IT and security, uh, what the, the issue was how do companies uh, protect the confidential, sensitive information that they have in terms of priority? And that was pretty interesting. What, what did you find in that study about the prioritizing of how information is protected? Well, what, what we found in this, when, and actually more than one study that we had a consistent set of findings on this issue, is that IT security practitioners really focus a lot of their effort, first and foremost, on what they refer to as an uh, intellectual property, source code, spreadsheets, special formulas, right. you know, the Coke versus Pepsi issue. My guess is that's where, that's the crown, the holy grail and the crown jewel combined of information. Then there's business confidential information. And business confidential information would be all of these reports, including accounting records. And the reason why that has become so important, quite frankly, is Sarbanes-Oxley. You know, the 404 requirements of Sarbanes-Oxley really holds CEOs and C-level executives to a very, very high standard with potentially some criminal penalties if they don't comply. So that has become number two. And then a distant third and fourth are customer, consumer, and employee records. I still think that companies are taking um, more serious steps in protecting that because of the data breach law. But in terms of the hierarchy of privacy and security, um, intellectual property and business confidential information is viewed as more important than customer and employee records. 
We're sitting here on beautiful Torch Lake, Michigan. I don't know if you can hear the, the gentle waves slapping against the wall here, but it is incredible. It's almost difficult to do this since I want to go out on the boat and go out on the water, but we are listening to two wonderful privacy experts who are have been on our show before. Susan Jason, who is a privacy researcher and with the Poneman Institute, and Larry Poneman, who is the founder and CEO and the world-renowned leader in privacy and a real mentor for me. and uh, Oh, ditto. Yes, I, I, you walk on water, and I expect when we stop this that you will actually walk across the lake for me here Do on water. remember that movie, Being There? Yes, with Peter Sellers, that was my favorite movie. And he walks on the water. Yes. Yeah. I, walk- can't, I can't do that. Oh, I, I bet And you I've can. never tried. I bet you can. <laughs> well, let's go to one of your other studies. I have so many. You've done so many incredible studies. Since we were just talking about businesses, let's, let's talk about your new study, the business impact of security breaches. Oh, very cool study. Tell us cool about study. the intent of that study. Our sponsor and, and partner in that study is a law firm by the name of Scott & Scott. And I got a call from Rob Scott, one of the managing partners of the firm, and he said, you know, I really love your cost of data breach research and some of your other studies, but what's the business impact? Does this actually change a company's security and technology and privacy compliance activities after they have a breach? And I said, you know what? I have no clue. We should, we should study that and figure out what, what is happening as a result of all of this. And what we found it was kind of a mixed set of findings. I don't think companies are doing a lot of things, but they're definitely taking more steps to prevent a future data breach if they have a data breach. Most companies in our study, I think it was 85%, actually admitted, and there's a halo effect when you do a survey, so it could even be higher than this, but 85% said they actually had one or more breaches. And 81% of the 85%, I recall, said that they were required to notify consumers as a result of the breach. So at least they knew. At least the consumers <laughs> knew about knew. it. Most of them knew. Right. Now, it seems like bre- the, we, we just call a data breach a data breach, but there are different categories. So you have, like, the catastrophic data breach. Choice Point was one. Bank TJX. of America. Oh, and Veterans Administration. Right. TJX. Even in California, I think it was UCLA had a massive data breach. Bank of the, America, the Bank remember? of America. So these are millions million, yeah. and millions of records. Citibank. Yeah, yeah, those are the ones that people... You know, they, they, they take notice. But then for every one of those, there are hundreds of data breaches that happen every year for the average company. It's like almost like a daily event. Even at our room renaissance, we're not going to mention the name yeah, of somebody. But got somebody I got a call. Uh, yeah, we had a data breach. Ah, you know, no, no problem. How many records? Ah, less than a thousand. I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, that actually wasn't said. But, but yeah. th- that's kind of the, the attitude. And I think at the end of the day, uh, organizations realize they have to cope with this, they have to do a better job in protecting, and at a minimum, notifying in ways that do not diminish the public's trust. So we're starting to see steps. But what was interesting and very dismal about our finding, I thought this was actually the most interesting finding, and it wasn't picked up in the press coverage, was the idea that when we asked, so what do you think the harm to the public is? We asked IT leaders, what do you think? Is it a lot or a little? And the majority of people I recall, and Susan, you can tell me if this is what you recall, is that it was the, the number one answer was no harm. That even though a breach occurs, what's the harm? Until an organization acknowledges the fact that there's a potential harm, even if it's not a monetary harm, mm-hmm. but it's worry and concern and fear. And possible I, future identity and theft. And possible you know, future identity know theft. To, yeah. to keep this stuff for a while yeah. and, you know. So I think what we found is that for the most part, even though companies are taking stock and doing better in some respects, they still don't see the value proposition to the consumer. They see this as more regulatory mumbo-jumbo that is just going to cost the consumer. The other finding in this study when we've done consumer research is consumers really care. When you get that notice of a data breach, it's not like the Graham Leach-Bliley privacy notice. Yeah, because you, you can't understand those at all. Yeah, you forget about it. You throw those away. You don't read them. Stop yeah. reading your... No, I shouldn't say right. that. But but companies spend... Banks and others spend lots of money getting that out. But a data breach notification, my goodness, people care about it. And you know what? We're, we're going to do a study on this one, too, we hope, if we have enough time in, in life. But we're finding that people care more about an employee 
data breach, something involving their employee-type data than consumer data. When you get a notification from your employer, I think that actually causes, causes more trust erosion than when you're a consumer. Well, your employer has access to your health and insurance information sure. and possibly all your health sure. issues, which is quite frightening. Yeah. And and your employer has, we know they have your social security number. Yeah, and, your and birth they have date, your performance and, and salary. And your performance and your salary yeah. and your um, retirement, I, benefits. retirement benefits. Yeah. Right, Susan. It's that's People are worried about their whole future. So, yeah, I think there's a lot more on you that, you know, maybe one bank will have certain information about you, which is terrifying. Um, or your credit card company, but when something like your employer or maybe uh, the home lender that has everything about you. Oh, I know. You know, those are those are top issues for you know for security breaches. Yeah, that. So we do find that fear of an employee, like we found in the Vantu study again, and also healthcare is a, another crown jewel. You know, if you lose healthcare records, forget you. Yeah. You're up the creek. We're not going to do business if it's a healthcare provider. So there are certain types of data breaches that the public views as being much more severe than others. We found, by the way, in that Vantu study, if it was a retailer, people didn't seem to care, even though it's credit and debit card information. It was weird. I mean, I well, would worry they, about Well, because they're TJX. not going to have to pay anything for a credit card. Right. You know, they're covered, and they're not going to pay a penny. Yeah. So it's not – and it's easier to clean up. You call up your credit card company, and you say – this is not mine. You know, all these uh, charges are not mine. It's yeah. fraudulent. Cancel the card. Send me a new one tomorrow. Yeah. It isn't as time-consuming and, and so belaborous as when someone gets your Social Security number, yeah. takes over your identity, or somebody has all your uh, personal information for your health care and, and reveals that you have AIDS or something. Yeah. I mean, that's just totally devastating. That is. That is. And I think that so that's what we're finding is a data breach is costly to a company in terms of lost trust. It's very costly when it's a bank and a healthcare and an employer. It's still costly if you're a retailer, but it's not as costly, at least thus far. But it's the verdict is out. I mean, if you know TJX advertises or TJ Maxx or whomever it is yeah. advertises that their profits are better than ever, even after the breach. But let's see what happens when five, ten, a hundred people start having identity theft as a result of that. I think the verdict is still out. Right, Susan. Let me ask you with regard to this study. You know how. What did you find? How prepared are organizations to respond to a security breach like the TJX? How, how, how prepared were they? Well, it's very interesting because you would think that because so many breaches have occurred that companies would start putting in incident response plans. They would start putting in the, the, the um, IT security that would, would help prevent it. And what we found is that very few had incident response plans. I forget the exact percentage. Now, afterwards, they did put in, after the experience, they, they <laughs> right, started they to, um, you know, started to look at um, encryption and, and, and look at putting in a, a plan. And they also were able to get senior management's attention. And this is what was in, another interesting finding was that those companies that have not had a breach to date or, you know, um, were, or before the breach occurred did not have the Man, uh, the, you know the the people at the top, the leadership of the organization, believing in the importance of of preventing a breach. So they were much more supportive after a breach, thinking, right. "Uh oh, <laughs> we now have to put money into this and put in something to to remedy the situation." Right. And we did a, a study of executives and board members. And this was a couple of years ago. We actually never published this study because it was a small sample size, yeah. and it was somewhat judgmental. But we talked to audit committee members, and we asked the question is, does your organization have a chief privacy officer? Yes, no, unsure. We knew the answer. We knew the yes. It was all yes. And, but we went to the companies, and we talked to their audit committee, someone on their audit committee, and 70% either said no or were unsure. So there was like a 70% failure, which means that they had no clue that they had someone in their organization called a chief whatever, chief privacy officer. Now, after the breach, my gut tells me if we did that study, it would be a very high percentage. So what are the costs that are involved in a breach? Gosh, we study that every year, um, and we're going to do our 2007 study. And this year, we're going to do the U.S. and the U.K. We're starting to expand outside of the U.S. because other parts of the world are starting to see the potential benefits of data breach notification. 
But the real cost, if you, the mother of all costs, is the lost customer trust, which results in customer churn and a reduction in customer acquisitions. And it's especially true in the high trust industries of healthcare, pharmaceuticals, financial services like online brokerage and banking. And although it's significant, it's not as significant in other industries like hospitality and healthcare. I'm excuse me, hospitality, not healthcare. Excuse me. I mean hospitality and and uh, and retail, and uh, and and basically the 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 major cost isn't the detection, isn't the the cost of putting a stamp on a an envelope and mailing you the you know the the notification, dear Larry, letter. Uh, it's really the longer term business opportunity losses. Um, and that's uh, true for retailers, and we're actually going to b- develop a comparable model for employee privacy-related uh, breaches, and we think that there's a similar model there as well. So we only have a few minutes left, and that's good because my uh, battery on my computer just went out. With that's all a my- good thing. <laughs> You know, when technology doesn't work, and we're still making it happen. Exactly. Yeah. We're still going. I mean, we're, we've gotten real creative today, haven't we? Yeah, we couldn't get the printer to work. We couldn't do... That's okay. I know, but well, that's okay because is... we've got our cherries, and we're in the cherry season. Yeah, we've got our cherries. This, this, is, this is northern Michigan, so anything goes here. And and it goes wonderful here. <laughs> it, it, it does. It's And we don't even have rain or anything. It never rains here, and it never snows. It's always about 85 degrees and sunny. Well, to, to wrap up what we've been talking about, Larry and Susan, I, we have a lot of businesses that drive by and listen, hopefully, to us here in uh, right in the middle of Orange County, California, as they'll be listening when they hear this tonight. What kind of advice should we give to large and small companies in terms of protecting them, their clients, their customers, their inside customers, their employees? What kind of advice should we give them in preventing or preparing for a breach? Gosh, I mean, my my view, I think the number one issue for a company, take this stuff seriously. Don't wait for a problem to happen. Make sure you have an incident response plan, even if you're a small company. I became aware of an incident this week. It was a very small organization in Chicago, and their whole business model is stuffing statements into an envelope and mailing. And the truck, a truckload of statements, 11 million statements were missing. Now, who knows what happened to a truck of, of and, but the first response of the company was, well, it wasn't electronic data. That's, that's not a problem, is it? And the answer is, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, you still won't, you know, it would be interesting two days from now to find out if they're still in business. So take it seriously, even when you're a small company, especially when you're a small company, because the stakes may be higher. The second issue that I would recommend is look at security technologies that are relatively inexpensive. You know, we do a lot of research with companies like PGP. PGP Corporation has very inexpensive encryption tools that's pretty available. Pretty good privacy. Pretty yeah. good privacy, but PGP Corporation has been around for ages. They have encryption. If you lose data and it's encrypted, for the most part, you really don't have to worry about it. I say for the most part. It depends on a whole bunch of other factors like having access to your encryption key. But if you do the right thing with very simple steps, you can fix that problem. Other tools, data leak prevention, preventing employees from sending attachments and all sorts of things and outbound email, that's really important stuff. Train your employees. If you have a call center, customer-facing activities, that's the first line of defense. Train people and make people aware that this is an important issue. And you know what else I would do? If you find that there are problems and mistakes, track them, monitor them, monitor them. When people realize that there's some monitoring that's happening around an issue, it does change behavior. Now, I probably am leaving one or two things out, so I'm going to turn it over to Susan. And did we leave anything else that you could recommend in the top five or ten list? Well, I would also say treat customers and employees' information as you would want yours to be treated. I think that, um, you know, I think that that's probably the best advice do unto others as you would want them to do to you. Exactly. And, and, uh, and if you're a consumer and you need a fantastic attorney, you need to hire Mari Frank. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't but, say no, that. <laughs> no, but, 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 but seriously, the key variable is you do have rights. You're not invisible. There are things that you can do as, a, as an employee, as a customer, as a consumer. Remember that. And, and as a responsible 
uh, employee in a company or a CEO. And I want to thank you both. You are absolutely wonderful people. Oh, thank and, you, Murray. And you can go to Poneman.org and you can see all the wonderful things they do. And you'll probably read about them everywhere you go because they're doing really important, cutting-edge research. And we thank you so much. We, You will be on again very soon. Oh, thank you. In the next exciting place. Maybe it'll be California. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Thank you. Thank You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. This is Privacy Piracy host Mari Frank. Please visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. And you can listen to all of our previous interviews, including Larry and Susan before, and see who our upcoming guests are. Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful night and keep your privacy. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.